0: Our grand theme, as uh, we make our way slowly through the second half of the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, is love. Love. Paul begins this section, beginning in verse 12, with, uh, excuse me, verse 9, with love must be sincere. Our love must be genuine. Our love must be without pretense or show. It must be real. And the simple form with which the word sincere love occurs in this verse suggests that they serve as a kind of heading for what follows. Paul here is setting forth a picture of the real love that we are to embrace and embody. Uh, Similar to what we find in that love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is extolling this quality of life that is to characterize the followers of Jesus Christ as we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds through the truth of the gospel. And it's important that Paul expound what love means. Because through the revelation of God in the gospel... He is filling this word love, the Greek word agape, with new meaning. You may have thought you knew what love was, Paul seems to be saying, but let me tell you what it really means. I mean, you may have thought that love was just a feeling that came upon you in the presence of someone special when you fall in love. Uh, you may have thought that love means simply not causing harm to people or not discriminating between people unfairly. Love is, is simply respecting human rights. Or you may have thought that love was just allowing people to live however they like and even affirming whatever choices they may have made. You may have thought that love means helping people feel good about themselves. It means making people happy or, or it means giving people what they want. Isn't that what people often mean when they talk about doing the thing that is loving? This vague, sentimental notion of love. It defines what is good. As in, if two people love each other, why shouldn't they be allowed to marry? We all have all sorts of conceptions of what love means. But Paul wants us to understand love in the light of who Jesus is. You see, when we say God is love it's not as if there is something out there called love that God has to conform to. I mean, that's what we often think. We create our own conception of what love is, and then we demand that God do just what we think a loving God should do. But see, that gets things mixed up, doesn't it? That puts love outside of God, and in some sense, above God. That's something that, that God himself has to answer to it reverses the order of things, doesn't it? Instead of God is love, it becomes love is God. And in the process, we make an idol of love itself. You see, if God is love, we must get our definition of love from God himself. Love is what God is. Love is not just one part of God, one attribute of God. No, God has no parts God is love all the way through. And so His holiness is an expression of His love. His mercy is an expression of His love. God's will, with all its moral demands upon us, is an expression of His love. And God's justice and even God's judgment. These are expressions of God's love too. So we can't uh, create this conception of love and then apply that to God. No, we must look to God To show us what God looks like and what uh, love means. And and the meaning of love is discovered and it is defined by who God is and what God does. And so God must reveal himself if we are to understand what love really means. And he has done just that. He has done it supremely through the sending of his son. God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only Son. And Jesus, as nowhere else, in his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus shows us what real love is. Real love, sincere love, the love that flows from God himself. Jesus shows us what authentic love looks like. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. And Paul writes in Ephesians 5, follow God's example, be imitators of God, he says, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see that? The love of God is revealed in the love of Christ, who gave his life as an offering for us. Uh, John, in his first letter, sums this up well. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so in our passage, you see, Paul wants us to reflect on this Jesus-defined love. And in our exposition of Romans 12, we've seen some ways that Paul spells this out. You see, if our love is to reflect who God is, If it's to be modeled on the love revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then our love must be sincere. It must be without pretense or show, flowing from the heart. But there's nothing fake or false about God's love. If our love is to reflect who God is, if it's to be modeled on the love revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our love must be morally discerning, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, for that's what God does. The cross of Christ reveals both the mercy and the wrath of the God who is love. And so if our love is to reflect who God is, if it's to be modeled on the love revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our love must be filled with family affection. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Our Christian fellowship is to be be characterized by fraternal and paternal love. We are to treat one another as loving members of a family, for the gospel creates a new community, a new family of God. If our love is to reflect who God is, if it's to be modeled on the love revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our love must be quick to bestow honor. Honor one another above yourselves, Paul says. Or isn't that the kind of love that Jesus showed toward us? Isn't that the kind of love that God has shown us in sending His Son into the world? God honors us with the gift of eternal life. He honors us when He adopts us as His own children. We're to show that same love to others. And if our love is to reflect who God is, and if it's to be modeled in the love revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our love must be passionate Romans twelve eleven. never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. For the love of Christ is nothing if not fervent and passionate toward us. Here, Paul is, is saying what we just sang in that song, isn't it? May the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. And so we get to our passage this morning in verse 12 which declares that our love must be prayerfully patient in hope. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 12. You'll see it printed here on your uh, outline. Uh, You might want to get this out just for a moment. I want you to look at it. I want you to look at this verse. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Uh, I, I want us to learn this by heart here this morning, right now. Shall we do this? I want us to say it together. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Let's say it without looking this time. Are you ready? Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's a great verse. I urge you to hide it in your heart. But here's the question. Now, what does this verse have to do with love? Just this. As Paul asserts in 1 Corinthians 15, real love, the love that reflects God's love, the love of the gospel, that love perseveres. It endures. But a superficial love, a human love, the kind of love that we often experience in day to day experience, no, that easily fades away. It fades away because it's based on my feelings or my circumstances or the qualities I find attractive in the person I love. And all those are fickle. All those can change. And our love can easily change with them. I think of something I read this week. I think of wives who marry believing their husbands will change, and husbands who marry believing their wives won't change. Uh, That combination doesn't make for a love that lasts. But you see, Jesus explicitly warns us of the danger of a fading love. In preparing his disciples for the hardships that they can expect when he leaves them with personal betrayals, hateful persecution, false teaching, Jesus says this, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That's a sobering warning, isn't it? Jesus is saying that the hardships of life almost inevitably have a chilling effect on love. Now, the Apostle Paul knew these hardships firsthand, didn't he? You you know about his repeated times in prison, his numerous floggings, his beatings, his being pelted with stones, his shipwrecks, enduring hunger and thirst in all sorts of danger. And Paul wasn't surprised by any of it. He knew that this was exactly what he should expect. He says it plainly. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. But none of this was easy for him. Every one of these troubles was a test. It was a test he must endure if he was to remain faithful in his love for Christ and his people. And not everyone passes those tests. Paul knows of some who didn't. And he mentions them by name. There's Demas, who because he loved this world, deserted me, he says. And there's Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have suffered shipwreck, Paul says, with regard to the faith. And perhaps you have known a Demas, or a Hymenaeus, or an Alexander, whose love for Christ and his people has grown cold. And instead of wrestling with God in the midst of their pain, as Job did, or even rejoicing that we share in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul did, they turn their backs on the Lord altogether. They're no longer walking in faith in Christ. Their love has grown cold. When things get hard, it's easy to become discouraged, disheartened. Lord, I I, I put my trust in you, and this is how I'm treated I have loved your people. They turned against me. My supposed brother has betrayed me. What's the deal with that? I'm sorry, this Christian thing, it just doesn't seem to be working. It's easy to grow cynical, antagonistic, turn away from the love that we're called to share. It's a fact, you see. Our love can grow cold because life is hard. I remember people asking me after the death of my father and then my brother and, and after we had lost a child through a stillbirth, doesn't it cause you to question your faith? But I asked, why should it? Does my faith ever tell me that none of these things are supposed to happen? I mean, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. I'm sorry, but those purveyors of a health and wealth gospel, those who promise that if you just have enough faith, God will heal all your diseases and shower you with riches. I'm sorry, but you have to face the facts. Life in this fallen world is hard for everybody. We all will suffer. We all will die. And far from rescuing you from all the suffering in this world, Jesus says that if you are loyal to him, you can expect to suffer even more. For we will suffer not only as fallen creatures in a fallen world, but also as faithful followers of a crucified Messiah. John fifteen twenty. Jesus told his disciples, Remember what I have told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. I think of the word of, uh, words of Bishop William Temple. He said, Not all that the world hates is good Christianity, but it does hate good Christianity and always will. Think about it. Jesus loved as no one ever could and it only resulted in him being cursed and crucified. Jesus states it quite simply, In this world you will have trouble. And that's why Paul says, what he does here. You see, if we're to love with the love of Christ, with the sincere and genuine love, then we must be patient in affliction. For affliction and hardship in some form or fashion will surely come. And he says, don't let that throw you off course. Don't let it confuse you or discourage you or dishearten you. Don't let it pour cold water on the fervency of your love. You see, these afflictions, are all part of a mysterious divine plan. The same divine plan that led Jesus, the Messiah, the very Son of God, to suffer on a Roman cross for our sins before he was raised to glory. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. So our love can grow cold because life is hard. And in order for our love to endure, we must be patient in affliction. We must endure hardship, not giving up, not giving in, holding on to Christ until the end. So, how can we do that? Our love can grow cold because life is hard, so we must be patient in affliction. And because life is hard, we need hope. So, we must be joyful. In hope. I've, I've reversed these two statements of our verse to emphasize this connection. We can be patient in affliction only as we are joyful in hope. It is hope that fuels endurance. I think about fishing. I like to fish, but I will keep fishing in the hot sun only as long as I have the hope of catching a fish. As soon as I lose that hope, I'm done. And isn't that the same with the the way in which the hope of championship glory enables athletes to endure the long hours of grueling training? And wasn't it hope that enabled Jesus Himself to endure the suffering and shame of the cross? As we read in the book of Hebrews, it was for the joy set before Him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what many see as a hopeless world, we as followers of Jesus have hope. We have hope. Now what is it we hope for? What is the content of Christian hope? Well, Paul would answer that question with one word. It is glory. It is glory. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? Glory. What comes to your mind when you hear it? Perhaps images of praise and honor associated with athletic victory or military conquest. Or perhaps it's the notion of beauty. What a a glorious day yesterday was. Glory. What a great thing glory is. And that word glory appears in the very first verse of the passage we just read from Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It appears in the lari- of their last verse of that passage. Uh, those God justified, He also glorified. And it was that word that introduced the theme of that passage back in uh, verse 17 of chapter 8. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His Glory. Glory. Paul is using this word glory here to to summarize and somehow to capture the totality of the riches of the goodness of God that he will one day bestow upon his beloved children. Glory, that is the inheritance that we will all share. And the the key to understanding what it means, I think, is found in this little expression that we are co-heirs with Christ. This blessed inheritance, the riches of God's goodness to us, will take the same form as that which he bestowed upon Jesus Christ. We will share in the very glory which God the Father gave to his own Son. And it will not simply be revealed to us, but in us, actually transforming who we are. Paul speaks of that in Philippians 3. He talks about waiting the coming of Christ who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that it will be like His glorious body. Or 1 John 3.2 Dear friends, we are now children of God and it has not yet been made known what we will be. But we know that when Christ appears we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We are co-heirs with Christ, destined to share in His glory. We will share in His victory. We will even share in His rule in this new creation. And what is the glory of Christ, risen from the dead, now in the presence of God the Father? What is is His glory, but a share in the very glory of God, a, a share in God's own life and love? That's the destiny of the children of God, to share in the glory of their Father in heaven, to know Him, to love Him, to share in His glorious life. That's the hope that is ours. God's purpose for us, as He says in verse 29, is to conform us to the likeness of His Son so that we will be in a position to share in His glory. This is the story of the whole Bible, isn't it? I mean, in the beginning, God created Adam as his image and likeness in the world, but through disobedience and sin, that image became tarnished. The glory was lost. And so Paul writes, all have sinned and now lack the glory of God. But God sent his Son into the world to rescue us from Adam's curse, To restore that tarnished image. Jesus Himself is the very image of God. Man as He was meant to be. Man created to glorify God. Man created to share in God's own glory. And by faith we too can share in that glory. We become all that we were originally created to be and more as we're joined to Christ. This is the content of Christian hope. And this is the hope that enables us to keep on loving in a world that might hate us. Now the question is, do we have any good reasons for believing anything so marvelous as this? That we will share in the glory of Christ? Well, not all hopes are well grounded, that's true. I like Samuel Johnson's famous remark on being told that a gentleman who had been very unhappy in marriage married again immediately after his wife died. That, sir, is a triumph of hope over experience. Not all hopes are well-grounded, you see. But our hope is grounded in the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Our future hope is grounded in a past reality. And so if you're joined to Christ by faith, you will share in His glory. Friends, I ask you, do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? It's there for us in the Gospel. As we put our trust in Christ, we look at that glorious resurrection and say that can be ours. As we put our faith in Him, recognizing that He died for our sin, and He comes now to give us new life. This is our hope, and this future hope, Paul tells us, should be a present joy. Be joyful in hope. And why not? If you have that hope, that hope that comes through Jesus, you now have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for you. You see what this hope means? It means that God has set His love upon you. He's adopted you into His family as His own child so that you may be an heir of His glorious riches. You are now a co-heir with Christ, a child of the King, which makes you a prince or a princess. That's who you are. That's who you are regardless of what anyone may say about you in this world. You may not get much respect. In fact, some people may treat you with contempt and ridicule. You may never get your name in the paper. You may live in utter obscurity. You You may never receive the honors and accolades of this world. But this hope means that you are somebody of enormous importance in the sight of God. You are a member of God's new people his new family you are holy and dearly loved and not only that you know that you, where you're headed in life your your life has a goal it has a purpose as you seek to live in a way worthy of this royal position to which you've been called and your father even now is putting you through training and preparation for your ascent to his royal throne now that's what they do with the royal family in England isn't it prince william prince harry They had to attend school. They even had to, some of them, serve in the military. They had to engage in certain forms of service to prepare them for their royal role. That's what God is doing in your life right now. And that's what Paul talks about when he says that God is working all things for your good. He's working all things for your good for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He's simply preparing you to enter into His glory. He's refining your character so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so this hope is certain, it is sure, and that's why it results in present joy. And I like the words of John Calvin. He says, although believers are now pilgrims on earth, yet by their confidence they surmount the heavens so that they cherish their future inheritance in their bosoms with tranquility. And so as we cherish our future inheritance, we can be joyful in hope. So our love can grow cold because life is hard, so we must be patient in affliction. Because life is hard, we need hope, so we must be joyful in hope. But how do we hold on to this hope in this fallen world which seems so hopeless? And this leads to our third point, the third point in Paul's triad of encouragement to us. To sustain hope, we must pray. And so he says, be faithful in prayer. It is in prayer that we recognize that in the midst of trial and tribulation... It is the Lord who is with us, and it is the Lord God who will give us strength to persevere. As Paul says in Romans 15, 5, He is the God who gives endurance and encouragement. And I know left to my own, under the strain of affliction, I will give up. I will become cynical or faithless or discouraged or depressed. I will lose hope, and so I will forfeit my source of joy, and my love will grow cold. That's why we must be faithful in prayer. That's why we must call out to the Lord as our source of strength. Now, this word be faithful here is translated in various ways. It has the sense of continuing to do something with intense effort, often despite difficulty. And this word is often found in the New Testament linked to prayer. I've got several verses here. Acts 1.14, the first disciples all joined together, constantly, faithfully, fervently in prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves faithfully to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts 6.4, the apostles appointed others to help with the care of widows so that they could give their attention to, devote themselves faithfully to prayer and the ministry of the Word. In Colossians 4.2, Paul simply says, devote yourselves faithfully to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray in the Spirit, he says in Ephesians 6, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, we all know what it is to to shoot up one of those foxhole prayers. You know what I'm talking about? You find yourself in a desperate situation, all of a sudden, you know you have no other place to turn, so you say, oh Lord, please help me. Okay? There's nothing wrong with those prayers But fathers and mothers, is that the kind of relationship you want with your child? They only come to you in emergencies, as a last resort? No. You desire a real relationship with regular and open lines of communication. And that's the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about here. Continual, devoted, attentive, faithful, fervent prayer. And isn't Jesus Himself our example in this regard? Just read the Gospels. And how often Jesus himself, the very Son of God, who lived in perfect relationship with God, is off praying by himself. And when he encountered his greatest trial, on the night he was betrayed and faced the agony of the cross, what did he do? He prayed to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's why in Luke 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. In the midst of the hardships of this life, we can never expect to hold on to the hope that we have and continue in love if we do not cling to the Lord in prayer. We must call upon the Lord for His help to see us through, for by His Spirit He will kindle within us the conviction of the truth on which we set our hope, a hope which empowers us to persevere in love. And God gives us provision. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8, which we read, in the same way the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We don't know how we ought to pray, what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Spirit knows what is in accordance with God's will. He encourages us, He helps us as we are faithful, diligent, devoted to prayer. Now how can we do that? let me just suggest one way that might help you. And that is to let stress in your life be a trigger for prayer. When you feel stress, that's a message from God that I need to pray. Uh, And it's only appropriate when you consider what the Greek word for affliction here means. It has the idea of something pressing down upon you, squeezing you. And that's what stresses do. They oppress us in some way. Now, Susan and I, in our 50s, took up scuba diving. Uh, And we learned that as you go deeper, the water pressure increases, which increases uh, pressure on your lungs. It presses in upon you. But the pressurized air in the tanks enables you to equalize the pressure, allowing you to breathe despite the pressure. You just don't feel it anymore. And so in a sense, in prayer, we breathe in the powerful Spirit of God, to balance the pressure we feel around us, and through prayer we find peace. It's a peace the world cannot give us. For in prayer we affirm what is true, the truth that this trial, whatever it may be, is in fact only a light and momentary trouble, to use Paul's words, that is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so you've probably heard these two fundamental rules for stress management. Rule number one, don't sweat the small stuff. Rule number two, it's all small stuff. And if you have an eternal perspective in view, that's true. It's all small stuff compared to the great glory that God has for us. And in fact, God is using even this small stuff for our good every single day. And in prayer, we affirm that. We come to the Lord. We seek His power to face the trials of this life. We we pray even that we might have joy in the midst of those trials, knowing that God is at work for our good and His glory. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, it's often said that our joy is not to be based on our circumstances. And there's truth to that. Our joy is not to be dependent upon our success or our popularity or our pleasure. All these are fleeting. Joy... But there's another sense, you see, when, when that's not true. Because joy is based on our circumstances when we understand that one of our present circumstances is that we are an heir to the king. One of our present circumstances is that we are always in the hand of a loving God. We are always being drawn along by his love, his purpose, his care in our lives. That's the most important circumstance in our lives. And in that sense, joy is related to our circumstance. But sometimes we just don't experience it. And that's why through prayer and our communion with God, we experience just a glimpse of that reality. And so we find joy in that circumstance above all others. Now, it's not easy to remain faithful in prayer, is it? And that's why we need each other to encourage us. It's helpful to pray with other people. Uh, We do that every week as we gather, our corporate prayer together. We pray together when we have special meetings for prayer as a church. You can have a, a, a prayer partnership where you get together with another person for the purpose of prayer. We pray with others in our community groups where we make it a practice to pray. You can pray with others in, at home with your family. All these things are helpful in helping us to be diligent in prayer. Because prayer, like nothing else, fuels our hope. And it enables that future hope to enter into our present experience where we experience something of the presence of God in our lives. And so prayer, like nothing else, can fuel our love. For in prayer we, we touch the source of all love, the God who is love, who has lavished us with His love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story is told of uh, the missionary, Adoniram Judson, when uh, he was at work in Burma, and all his work was destroyed. His printing presses were smashed, his converts killed or scattered, and he himself was put in a filthy dungeon. And his captors taunted him, asking, What are your prospects now? Justin answered, They are as bright as the promises of God. Our prospects are always as bright as the promises of god that is our hope a joyous hope that can help us be patient in affliction but which can only be sustained as we are faithful in prayer and for our love to endure to the end we must be joyful in hope patient in affliction faithful in prayer let's pray O Lord, our prayer is that the saving love of Christ may be the measure of our lives. May it be so. Stir up within us a holy love and we pray that you would work so that we might persevere in love and faith before you. May we not be those whose love grows cold. May we encourage one another until that day